Can anyone tell me what the book of Haggai is about? Is it in the Old or the New Testament? It sounds like it's from the Old. That's an easy one. Haggai is a prophet. And is a part of a series of writings in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. An unfortunate label that they've been relegated to. This is uh, compared to the, the major prophets. The big deal prophets. These are people like Isaiah, Jeremiah. Some of the longest books in the Old Testament, longest books in the Bible. And then you have this collection of tiny little prophets, the minor prophets. This are, these are people like Jonah, Hosea, Micah. Haggai is one of the prophets. The prophets came about in all their writings during a time of exile. So here's you know, the, the quick overview of the Old Testament. The Jewish people living in Jerusalem had their city destroyed completely and utterly, taken over, and then they were all kidnapped, taken away from their home. In history, this is called the Babylonian captivity. Babylon was the, the greatest army the world had ever seen, and they came in and destroyed everything. It took all these people that it had taken them 40 years or so, wandering through a desert, to finally get to, and now they're being taken away. That captivity, that, that period away from home lasts a little around 50 years, right? So that means that maybe, maybe there are a few people around who remember this house in its former glory. Who remember what it was like in the 60s BC. Um, But the reality is that there's a lot of people who've joined along the way. There are people who were born in exile, and they've really only heard stories about the former glory. Oh my God! You, it was just you could we filled every every row. You should have seen it then. Oh my goodness! We almost had to build a second parking lot for the temple. Is what I'm talking about. The prophets did their work in this time of exile. There's a period of 50 years where this, I'm just going to call it a church, right? This community of people are trying to figure out, like, what is our identity? And it's hard when you're in a season of loss. When people around you die, when decades move on, when you lose things. Sometimes it's hard because what you were is not often what you are. Things change. There can be central parts of your identity, values, but we as people are often a part of lives that move and change. The prophets did work to try to help people remember who they were. This included prophets like Amos who said, okay, listen, you know, imagine them being a part of like an ancient beta vitality process or like church visioning team. They're all sitting around saying like, okay, when we get out of captivity, right? When we, get, when we finally get into the promised land, what's our mission statement going to be? Like, what are our values? What are our mission focus areas? What do we do really well? When we finally get back, like, what's our game plan here? 
People like Amos wrote entire wrote an entire uh, book in the Bible that it's really about something like worship. Like, hey, if we're going to start again, if we're going to do things right, we've really got to be concerned with how we worship. Like, enough of the empty rituals, enough of the smells and the bells. Like, if if we get, if we're fortunate enough to get a second chance at this, we're really going to have to find ways to worship in authentic forms, ways that are filled with spirit and truth. Then you've got people like Micah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, that say, enough of all the smells and the bells. God is concerned with social justice. Like, if, if we get a chance to start over again, central to, our, central to our identity has to be a deep and abiding commitment to social justice, reconciliation, to bridging the gap. It's got to be a part of our identity. And on and on and on the work of visioning goes year after year. I think some, some of you have been a part of that work in this church. Spent your decade on the church council team trying to think about vision statements. And along comes Haggai. One of only three prophets in the Bible whose work comes after the exile. Meaning they've returned home. It's not the 90s anymore, BC, is what I'm saying. We've got a more clear idea of what the landscape is like. There's some youth in this new movement back home. And Haggai is writing for one singular idea. It is time to rebuild the temple. See, the temple was destroyed in the conquest of Jerusalem, flattened to the ground. It's the greatest temple anyone had ever seen. You've got to remember the way that temple functioned in the old world. It wasn't just for emotions, it was for actions. The temple, the physical space, wasn't just like, oh my goodness, that made me feel so good inside. No, no, no. It dictated and it affected your actions. Like when you walked into the temple, it was like so beautiful, you walked slowly, Right? Like the way that it was physically set up, like physically affected how you would sing, like how you would smell things. It was a powerful reminder of the way that people believed in the presence of God. And yes, they believed that God moved and was active everywhere. But for some reason, that like unique physical space really made it easier for them to be like, I think God is here. Like, this is pretty cool. It was contagious in some ways. Except... After 50 years of struggling, after 50 years of visioning statements and what are we going to do when we're finally over there where the grass is greener, they've been back. We get a weirdly specific introduction to this story. It gives us the exact date of when this is happening. They've been home for 18 years. Still no temple. Hmm. Let me uh, rewind for a second and read the beginning of Haggai. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of all people. These people say the time to rebuild has not yet come. 
We're not there yet. We still, we got, we got more work to do. Maybe another visioning committee. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of God came by the prophet Haggai saying, Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your fine paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of all, consider how you have fared over this time. You have sown so much and harvested so little. Some of you know what I mean. Spent a lot of time, energy, money. Consider how you have fared. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is truly warm. And you earn wages, but wages as if you put them in a bag with holes. Hmm. Does that sound familiar at all? You know, um, place matters. And I think there's a tendency for us to say, you know, the, the church, the church is a people, not a place. And yet we continue to meet in places. And the entire biblical story unfolds in places. Places that often become really significant to us. But a full and honest reading of the Bible would also tell us that places change. And how we experience God and how we experience each other and ourselves in those places also changes. Anyone who has ever lived in a house for over 20 years, maybe you raised your kids there. And now you're finding that it's a little challenging to keep up with the day-to-day tasks of maintaining this home. And you've had to make the difficult decision to sell and move into a smaller home. Or a community that offers more care for your aging bodies. You know how difficult this experience is. But you also know that places change for us. Yeah, you, you can be someone who can remember this house in its former glory when the kids would rush down the stairs for Christmas morning. But they don't live here anymore. And the place has changed and how we want to gather in the place also needs to change. I will always remember this gathering I had with an author named John Philip Newell. Is anyone familiar with John Philip Newell, J.P. Newell? Boom, one person, that's all I wanted. Um, J.P. Newell is a, it's a contemporary writer about Celtic spirituality. A really, really cool guy. And I, I had the opportunity to host him uh, at the last church I pastored in Ashland, Oregon. Is anyone familiar with the Abbey of Iona in Western Scotland? 
uh, maybe just a couple more people. So John is an ancient, you know, Celtic Christian abbey. Uh, John Philip Newell used to be the warden of Iona, which is kind of like the, the, the chaplain of this ancient monastery. Truly just one of the great thinkers about Celtic spirituality and, and has made such an impact in the world because he's done really simply this work of talking about an ancient form of believing and embodying uh, spirituality in ways that really resonate with contemporary audiences, right? Like you're talking about something that is thousands of years old, and yet at the same time, it like it sounds so fresh and relevant that you're like, that's exactly what I've been trying to express or have been looking for. And so my church hosted John Philip Newell, and uh, he was talking about you know, th- this renewed new Celtic spirit. And there was a question and answer service at the end. And someone asked a question, you know, everything you say is just like so perfect. Like it's, it's, it's exactly what my neighbors would want to hear. It's like exactly what I wish I could say about my faith and spirituality when someone asks me about it. But how do we get from where we are now to what you're talking about? Because like when I read the book, it sounds so great. But on our day-to-day operations, in our hymnals, in our Bible texts, in our studies, in our gatherings, it just feels like another world. How do we get there? And I'll always remember that truly, without skipping a beat, quietly and also confidently, John Philip Newell said, to begin, you can remove your pews. He said, you know, for as long as you gather, but are still far apart. Reach your hands out, by the way. (laughs) There's a couple of you that are going to hit the person that you came with. And then many others that need to jump pews to hit someone. John Philip Newell said it's like a, a bag with holes in it. Familiar line from the text. He talked about the ancient Celtic belief that central to worship is the ability to be aware and present of each other in more ways than one. That when you sit, when you sit, when you gather, you should be able to see the faces of other people. You only see mine, unfortunately, or the back of Steve Pollard's head. So, you know, a couple of months ago, a month or two ago, our leadership council voted that we're going to remove our pews. And this is a really intentional decision. You know, it has some really immediate, obvious benefits and then some deeper things that I hope are going to really take hold. You know, for one, many of us, when we sit in these pews, you know, sit along the edges because it's kind of hard to like get into the middle of it. And if you're in the middle of the pew, like you have to be you know, agile enough to kind of sneak your way through. I think that's hard on some of us in our aging bodies. I have a bad back and that's hard for me. We also talked about how we kind of think that that's a bit of a safety concern. That whether it was a fire or a true emergency happening in here... This might not be the easiest way for us to get out of this room quickly. Talked about the fact that if you arrive here with 
a walker or a wheelchair or a stroller. Really very little room for you in here. We talked about the fact that when we sing, you just hear yourself often. And how there's a real power in being able to kind of play the telephone game with all the other people around. That you hear what they sing, they hear what you sing, and we become more connected in how we're participating musically. That you can see other people's faces when you're kind of set up in a bit of a circle. That when newcomers join us, it can be difficult sometimes. Because as our aging bodies have encouraged us to sit on the edges of the pews, that means it's hard for them to get to the pew if all of them, there are only 24 pews here. And so you end up taking your own pew? That's not a win. And you're often alone. So I want you to imagine with me how things could still be different. Yes, places matter. But places also change. And if it has been an important rhythm for you to leave on a Sunday morning and come to this physical space, you know, we really respect that. But we also believe that God is still living and active today. And that how we're going to gather is going to change. You know, we're aiming to take the pews out in January. We have the money to do it. We have support to do it. It's going to give us this really new opportunity. After a long time to still say, this is, this is alive. This gathering is, is living. When newcomers come, they'll be invited into the circle. They will be able to be seen instead of on the back pews. When we sing, you'll be able to hear others. The space will become dynamic. Now, I know that that might be challenging if you've only really imagined it one way. But if you believe that your imagination isn't set and that things can still change, I want to invite you to imagine how maybe this new possibility could begin another new chapter for this church. And I don't want to just imagine it. I want to invite you to make it happen. Truly. You know, we have the chairs. It'll take a little bit of money to make it happen. It'll take more work to actually do it. But I'm going to invite you to use what you have at your disposal to help us enter into a new chapter together. To use your lips to not criticize this, but to maybe audibly imagine. This, this could be something new and different. To use your time and energy to invite people into a circle. To make just an invitation to yourself. That as a new chapter begins, do you want to be a part of something new? Or does it need to be the old temple in its former glory?